The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello, everybody. I'd like to welcome Andrea Kelly. Andrea Kelly is an award-winning actress for the short film Scope, for which she won the Best Performance Award at Bolton Film Festival 2018 and Best Actress Winner at the 9th Underground Cinema Awards 2018. Her recent work includes indie features Thursday's Child and the voice of the Queen Mother and Animation Royals Next Door for RTE. Television includes Prosperity, The Clinic and Pure Mule. Andrea has a background in theatre, having trained at the Samuel Beckett Centre, Trinity College Dublin, and has worked with The Gate, The Abbey and Drew Theatre, as well as other Irish theatre companies. Welcome to the show, Andrea. Hi, thanks for having me, Simon. I'm good, yeah, good. It'd be nicer if it wasn't as windy outside and blustery here, but... Yeah, well, the weather here today is not as good as, as it normally is, but you're having pretty bad weather with floods, aren't you? Yeah, and it's really stormy, actually. I mean, it was a lovely day yesterday, but no, it's really bad, very stormy and blustery and, yeah, you know, typical Irish weather. <laughs> but re- did you, you didn't recently have snow? No, you didn't. Uh, we did. We had a little bit, yeah. Small bit. Yeah, it kind of came. Yeah, no, we did enough for the kids to kind of go out and play and build a snowman and stuff and, um, and on the hills. Mm. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So Andrea is in Ockram. That's right, isn't it, Andrea? You're in Ockram in County Wicklow. Yeah. How long have you been there? Um, probably about seven or eight years, I think. Yeah, yeah, about yeah, seven. It'll be coming up eight years this year. Um, so yeah, it's Ockram is kind of a, a small village down in southwest Wicklow. So we're kind of further than Bray. Most people say, "Oh, do you live near Bray?" And you're like, "No, actually, we're we're kind. Of, you have to go down a little bit further <laughs> into the heart of the county." So um, yeah, it's out in the sticks, the rural rural Wicklow. Okay. And tell us like about Ockram. Is it is it a very quiet place or, you know, is there a lot of people living there? Uh, yeah, I don't know actually the population of it, to be quite honest. But no, it's pretty, I mean, it's a pretty busy village. It's kind of picturesque tourist type destination, I suppose, for people. Um, but no, I mean, it's a busy village. You've got a couple of pubs, you've got a pharmacy, you've got a couple of shops. Um, there's a hotel, Lawless's Hotel. You've got huge, big one of the county, I think it's the county GA pitch I don't know GA kind of goes over my head but um no it's actually yeah it's a it's a it's a big kind of center of population for people outside Arklow we're eight miles to Arklow um, and then Tinnahili would be the next and then Rathdrum and then about an hour and 20 minutes from Dublin so yeah huge commuter belt this this whole kind of region in Wicklow a lot of people would commute to Dublin for work so yeah and tell me is you know during covid i'm sure obviously it's very quiet there is it if you were to walk outside the door now i'm sure there's not much happening or or is maybe it's the total opposite maybe it's as normal during the day no yeah well i don't know i suppose because villages because we're not on any kind of transport links so i mean you know these areas are pretty full of cars a lot of the time like even where we live you know you'll have two cars parked in every driveway because that's how people kind of in rural Ireland get about because the transport's so bad. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more people out walking. I mean, we're very lucky here that there's lots of beautiful places to walk and we have forests nearby and even within the five kilometre, as they say. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I think it's, it's yeah, you probably notice more in like cities, city centres. Um, yeah, 
definitely or towns where shops are closed, mm. you know, and things yeah. like that. Especially if you went into Arklow now to the town, you'd really notice kind of um, the shops. Yeah, different, quiet. So, yeah, so I, I have to disclose, uh, Andrea is, uh, uh, I, we know each other a little bit as she is one of my other sisters. Um, so, and we, I had one of my sisters on, uh, Sharon Fitzmaurice, a, a few months ago, and Andrea is one of my other sisters. So I have to l- disclose that because people will be saying, it seems like there's a connection or they know each other. So, <laughs> so we can't hide that. Yeah. <laughs> There's a familiarity there. Yeah, there's a bit of familiarity. They're so kind of look alike, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, who's better looking? Like? <laughs> I'm the dark one, the dark one, yeah. the dark Vader. <laughs> but that's just your personality. <laughs> so, so tell us, Andrea. Look, let we'll we'll go back a little. You know, we'll talk about obviously. You know, when you're a few years younger than me and. But for you, when you look back to your childhood, kind of, you know, what was your first kind of memories? Where, where do you remember the most as a child when you were, you know, when you think back? Um, I suppose back to when, I mean, I have vague memories of we lived kind of in Kildare and um, Kilcullen, Allen Wood. You know, I'd have very fleeting memories of that, like there was a, the Wendy house outside in the garden in Allen Wood, if, if that's not my imagination. Um. I have a very um, good recollection of uh, one of the neighbours in Kilcullen. I won't name him, actually, because I haven't seen him since then. But I think we got married in someone's communion clothes. You got married? We up the stairs and said we got married. Now, we were probably only, because, I mean, I think I was four when we moved to Galway, 1981, I think. So I was born in 1977. But I got married to this guy, but we were really good friends, actually. We were only kids, obviously. But I think we went somewhere once, maybe visiting somebody, and I came back and I had a little tricycle and he took my tricycle without asking me. And I think I slapped him or something. So the marriage was over. I wasn't very happy anyway. And I was kind of, you know, that he took it without asking. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that was our divorce. But that, yeah. And, I, you know, again, I suppose what, what part of that memory is actually true or, you know, embellished in my own mind. Um. So that was those kind of, yeah, and vague memories of kind of living near the Bog of Allen as well, wasn't it? And Allen Wood. Or, yeah. Did he get to keep the bike from the divorce? He did not. Well, maybe he did. I don't know. I don't remember it ever coming with us afterwards. <laughs> and the question is, was it even your bike? I know. That's what I was going to say. Maybe it was just something I found on the side of the road in the in the town. or Because it was a little town, wasn't it? Like by a little bridge. So, um yeah, it's funny, isn't it, those kind of memories? But no, probably I suppose because I was the youngest of all of us. So when we moved to Galway and um, to our mother's old home place, that was kind of for me, I suppose, where my younger years start because there was a lot of, you know, the introduction to horses and um, we lived our aunt was there. And yeah, the country, you know, I, I started school. So for me, that was very much a beginning stage for my journey because I, I grew up most of my life in Galway, really, I suppose. So. What what age were you when you moved to Galway? I think I was four. I think it was 1981. So I think I was four, yeah, because I, I started school then probably that year. Um, so, yeah, I mem- actually have very, very strong memories of walking over the road to the neighbours to get a lift to school. And I always remember mommy standing, our mother standing at the door, and I would be bawling my eyes, leaving her at the door. I just that, you know, the attachment and being the youngest as well, but just, oh my God, I used to cry my eyes out. And that, you know, the thing you'd get to like the neighbours and you'd have to pretend you weren't crying. But when you think back now, obviously it was so obvious. Yeah. But, you know, 
and like little brown shoes, you know, things like that. Memories, isn't it? Your little kind of brown leather shoes. Or... That at that stage, you were four. You were only kind of you weren't even in first class. You were like in infants, weren't you? Still? Yeah, sure. I just started. Yeah, I was probably nearly five or yeah, because we started younger back then as well, didn't we? They kind of yeah. sent kids to school. Um, yeah, so I suppose that. Do you remember who your first teacher was in Cummer? And Mrs. Nolan. Oh, Mrs. Nolan, yes. Yeah, I think Mrs. Nolan was for the juniors. And then I had Mrs. Conway. Yeah. And then Mrs. McElwain, Mrs. Um, yeah. Scahill, Mrs. Scahill. Oh, Miss Scahill, yeah. Ms. Yeah, Scahill. and then Mr. O'Callaghan, wasn't it? And then uh, John McDonough, the principal. John McDonough, yeah. Yeah, there was kind of a... The thing in Cummer National School, it was like climbing a ladder. You... You were in infants, you know, and you didn't think much about the teachers. You you knew the presence of your teacher. But when you got then towards, you know, first class and second class and the teachers obviously had their own characters and personas and you either liked them and you didn't or feared them or whatever. But then I remember people would talk about the teacher. Oh, wait till you get to this teacher. Or they would talk about the teacher further up. And then, of course, up to the top, John McDonough was like Peter at the gates of heaven, you know. He yeah. welcomed you, but he was very strict. Really nice man, mm. but he was a strict yeah. teacher too. And and you had to kind of gain his respect, which was a good thing. Yeah. Um, but but that's it. I think I think people don't look at the whole kind of process of going through the levels of national school and all the different teachers that are there for 30 years. When you look back on it, it's quite a process, isn't it? It is, but as well, because I, I, I work as a substitute teacher as well. It's kind of something that I kind of just not fell into because, you know, that sounds like that it's it, that I don't appreciate doing it or I'm not able to do it. You know, I the skills I have as an actor, my facilitation skills, and because, you know, especially you build relationship with the kids, and I'm quite versatile working across different areas that are required in school. But yeah, I've really kind of seen like, I suppose, like that's a bird's eye view. Is it bird's eye view? I'd say of like within schools. But teachers, you know, they're human. They have their lives as well. And if you're a teacher's in school for 30 years, like all of us, they're going to go on. They're going to have a journey and they're going to have dramas and they're going to have moments where they're just not functioning as human beings as well. So, yeah, I suppose you look back, you know, and you just and some teachers, some people are genuinely good teachers and, and are there because they want to teach and other people kind of like I said that fall into it or do it because mm. their parents were teachers so again you know it's it's um it's a tough job you now I've great respect for actually for teachers but but it's a it's a very rewarding job actually I think for anyone that works in the education system it's not um it's very rewarding actually working with with kids you know and and kind of seeing their growth and for me actually as someone who goes back in now and again I could be away for months it's it's, it's lovely to see and especially like kids and resource as well it's lovely to see kind of how they've come on or how they've progressed that's that's really nice you know yeah yeah the, the so when you let's say we're in Comer then and obviously uh, after sixth class and you know, you decided to go into Tume and you went to the Mercy, didn't you? So what was there? Was that yeah. was that choice yours as well? Do you remember looking back or did you say, I want to go to the Mercy because my friends are going or did our parents kind of make that decision for you as well? No, I think because our sisters went to the Mercy. It was yeah. kind of that way, it wasn't it? Wherever your sisters went to school um, and my friends, yeah, were probably going to the Mercy as well. But no, I think it was more to do with where the, your sisters went, where your, your siblings went. Um yeah, I mean, they're two totally different worlds, actually. I don't even, I kind of remember, like, you know, I mean, I mean, I have such fond memories of primary school. I was going to say that because our school was amazing. Like, even think the monastery next door and the, 
the orchard and the gardens and then we used mm. to go into the tree like we had such a an amazing backyard didn't we like a playground yeah, yeah, for school yeah. it wasn't like being in school sometimes it was like being kind of on an adventure camp <laughs> um yeah it was it was an adventure kind of a scenario because you had all these big trees you could hide in you had the monastery beside it which you weren't supposed to go but everybody yeah. kind of ventured in and and you know and high walls around the school it, it was a, it was a huge kind of complex the school seemed very small compared to the grounds yeah and then the classes i suppose back then in those days well were smaller so i mean i have such fond memories of the people that were in class with me because i mean i can all still feel their distinct energies all of them and how they kind of I suppose they, you were just so close, weren't you? Like I see my son now as well with his friends. You were so close to them, even though you might have kept relationships down the line. But if you met those people again, you'll always have that connection of being together, won't you? Like growing up, yeah. as such, you know. Um, you know, do you remember, uh, you know, one or two girls in your class or boys or whatever, and you kind of saying, I want to go to school with them. I want to continue with them. Was that something you remember looking back when you were in sixth class? No, I don't think so. I mean, we were all quite close, but um, no, it wasn't that actually, because I was very kind of individual. I suppose I was so very independent and I just, um, I kind of knew that transition between primary school and secondary school that I was going to change dramatically and that everything was going to open up for me. You know, I had that sense that kind of the world was my oyster, as they say, in a way, you know, in terms of like having the yeah. freedom to be who you want to be. I think that was really exciting. I remember that very distinctly in uh, going into secondary school. I was like, I mean, I, I kept a seat beside me and I, I decided who I wanted to sit beside me <laughs> because I knew, I knew that first meeting would be like, you know, because usually like in those situations, the person you meet at the first time is kind of the person you're going to um, be friends with. I kind of had that it's like, almost like a destiny feeling, you know. So I, I wanted it to be someone that was on the same. I kind of was because our brother had been into the mods and the who and stuff. So I was kind of in my head a little modish or into the Beatles. Yeah. So I wanted someone who shared the same um, style. You were, as you were sitting in the seat, you were kind of screening potential candidates for that seat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, like mean girls. Wow, <laughs> mean girls of the mercy. No, well, no, but I just knew it was an important thing because I suppose I maybe I'm like that with people. You know, I, I wouldn't be fickle about my friendships, or I wouldn't become friends with the first people I meet. You know that kind of way. It takes me a long time to build up a relationship. It has to be a kind of a genuine thing. So yeah, I was, I was. That that's the amazing thing I think. I suppose is that we don't give enough credit to young people. We're very aware, like we're very self-aware. And, you know, so maybe some of us choose not to be self-aware and other, but I was quite self-aware. Yeah. I think I, I kind of, I kind of like creating my own um, destiny, I suppose, in a way, isn't it? A little bit. Yeah. And I suppose teenagers, can, as you said, we don't give them enough credit, but they can be selective in who they want to be friends with. And, and like that, you, when you think back, you'd say, oh, wow. So I, I don't remember doing that kind of a thing as a teenager. But then everybody has different levels of intelligence. And some people are saying, I don't make friends easy. And I want to choose carefully who's going to sit beside me. I don't want to be planted beside someone I don't like. So I'm going to really like think this over. And I suppose the question everyone's going to ask, and you have to answer this, is how did you decide then who was going to sit beside you? I think I kind of asked her. It was Katrina O'Sullivan, her name was. I, I think Katrina, I asked her what music she was into, and she was actually into the Beatles and stuff like that. So 
So I was like, yeah. Now, again, that memory could be a bit actually just, you know, that's what I said. That's why I remember it. And I go, maybe it wasn't that way. You know, maybe she just sat down. Maybe I want to feel like I had some kind of, um, not control, but I don't know. But that's the way I remember it. But again, like I suppose, there's a very interesting thing because when I went into secondary school, you know, like we, we know ourselves, we came from a very kind of authoritative background, you know. And I think it was that need for just like independence and kind of hating authority, which anyone who lives with authority will end up rebelling against it. And I think that's a good thing. I think everyone should rebel against authority, even if they don't, you know, in some way that it's that punk thing, isn't it? So I suppose as a teenager. Um, so, yeah, I remember one girl, there was an interesting thing, like five years on where people had to write something about you. Yeah. We just had to write a line about each other in fifth year. I think it was. Well, one of the girls in my year that time, she said, I remember you coming into first year and you were like, no one's going to tell me what to do. <laughs> you know, walking around in my Mercy wow. uniform in the in the grounds of the Mercy. I was like, you know, and she was laughing and I was kind of going, I came in with that attitude a bit like that. I just, I, I was, I, I suppose I was a bit rebellious. I wasn't bold or nasty. I don't think I was. Maybe the teachers might say, but, but I was definitely... Um, I was definitely, I did develop... Strong-willed. Yeah, but I was very individual. I mean, I, I, I didn't ever wear the uniform properly and I didn't... Um, I wore different colour cardigans and stuff. I never wanted to look like everyone else. Um, so I was always striving to be an individual, definitely. You know, obviously, when you went into first year and you had you had kind of started to develop your identity and, you know, as a teenager and who you wanted to be, do you think that you were you had an idea of what you wanted to be or you were kind of following like, I don't want to say a fashion, but music fashion or you were following a trend that you kind of defined in your head as being, this is where I want to go. No, I suppose that like, that's what I said, the, the influence of our older brother's music was huge on me because I found it was very cool. And I suppose that thing as well, of trying to be different, but no, I th well, yeah, wanted to be different, but not, but again, I liked the music. I was never into that kind of mainstream. I was never into mainstream rock or that. And I was never into um, the kind of 80s vibe. So, you know, I suppose it, lots of other things, your environment and things that are happening around you shape, you know, where you kind of veer towards and, and the people you, you meet. Um, the whole kind of musical thing was an influence from people I met. Definitely. There was a group of older kind of guys, punks. And then, the, you know, we all developed into that kind of, eventually into the, the Smith scene, you know, that was kind of junior, mm. 14, 15. Um, but there was just a time even, you know, there was a guy, Noel, across the world who had a video shop. Like, we just went into him. It was like kind of a, an 80s movie, you know, in America, like where you were friends with, you know, the um, the guy in the video store, you know, and we'd go in there and just hang out and be talking about all this cool stuff. And it was just, we were very much like forging our own identity. And and I think that thing of teenagers living in our own world, you know, creating our own yeah. world, which was very exciting. <laughs> yeah, and, and I suppose, you know, in a town like June, which has different identities going on in it, but also has kind of a, a mainstream identity of the type of music there and everything, maybe in some way you felt like kind of outsiders a little bit or that you were in a very small percentile kind of niche, no? Yeah, well, I don't know if the others did because, I mean, we were all very different personalities and we came from very different backgrounds. I mean, I think out of my group of friends, I mean, I was probably the most coming from a kind of dysfunctional background. So I was probably an outsider in my head anyway, and maybe I just wanted to kind of um, compound that and make it more exciting. Do you know what I mean? And and kind of um, um, 
because you're kind of existing. I don't know. It, it again. I suppose there was a lot of detachment going on and stuff as well. That's it. You know, you're you're detaching yourself from the realities of life. So there was a lot of that, definitely. I mean, especially when I got into the Smiths, there was a lot of detachment where I just went like whew, full on into yeah. like being an obsessive Smiths fan because that's that got me through. I think that's that's um, that happens a lot of people. You know, we become slightly obsessive about things because they're kind of like. Um, they're life-saving tools, aren't they, really? Or, you know, keep the same. As you said there, especially if a family is anyway dysfunctional and, you know, the one thing probably everybody thinks their family is the worst, but they don't see all the other problems going on in other families. Yeah. But you, as a, as a teenager anyway, you need to identify with something. And if you kind of look at your own parents and, and, you know, whether one of them or both of them are not maybe the role models you wish for. And then the other thing is you kind of want to try and find an identity. So a singer or an actor or somebody like that can give you that because you don't get all of their shit. You don't get all of their rubbish. They could be manic depressives in real life and the worst people ever, but you see a side of them that kind of makes you go, I want to be like that, or I want to identify with that kind of a thing. So for, for you with Morrissey, was he, would you, when you look back, was he like a really iconic person for you in how he defined your teenage years? Because Morrissey, I wouldn't agree, actually. I suppose I didn't even understand a lot of his beliefs and some of his things now that I wouldn't have any, any, um, I wouldn't agree with him at all or his stance. You know, he is quite, he's quite hardcore in certain ways. I suppose the Smith stuff, the earlier stuff, it was the music, Simon. It was the music and it was the lyrics. And it was the lyrics in some of the Smith songs. I think for most people who fall in love with the Smiths, that when you're going through things and that, that the lyrics are what connect you. And it feels like, that's about me. That's me. I'm singing my own song, you know, and and you're part of this wider community. Like when I was 15, I went to London. I used to write to Smith's pen pals, you know, and I stayed with one. Even at 15, I went over on my own. To my brother and then I stayed with this woman I was pen pal she was about 22 and I stayed with her for the night and you know I just wow. I went to see this guy who'd uh, a Smiths fan who lived in Tooting Beck and we had to take the tube down I'd never been on a tube I remember having kind of a panic attack in the tube um in, with myself and um seeing this guy who was slightly depressed I think he tried to kill himself or something and chatting to him and it was just like but it was so that's why I said it was just so surreal but like amazing but but never um always I, I never felt in danger you know I always knew kind of I, I always knew myself I think I, I don't know why I just I always kind of knew um what I was doing you know I was never kind of reckless or stupid or foolish about stuff I was pretty clued in for some reason yeah and you know when you look back to the Smiths obviously and I think the Smiths for you know a lot of teenagers were very influential in the sense that they kind of had this they gave people an identity or gave them something to believe in that was different from the mainstream, you know, because it's like when people started listening to punk and everyone else was listening to, you know, rock and roll or, or rock music. It, punk was something different. So did you feel for you as regards music that the Smiths and that kind of style of music that I don't, I don't want to call it new romantic because it wasn't really new romantic. It was more, I don't know. It was alternative, but did you feel that, it gave you a different thing. It, it gave you what you wanted. I think, I suppose, that, like, I suppose anyone who was a Smiths fan, it, there was the poetry in it because there was a bit of the romanticism. There was the sadness. I think it was the sadness that, you know, that you could feel that sadness that you had within you, but you didn't have to present that to the world, you know, because to the world, you're like this, you know, 
I had a quiff at 15, you know what I mean? I'm walking around with a Mercy Convent girl with a quiff, you know, I'm like, there's nobody like me in the school. I walk into the local disco, you know, and people are like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, what did she do to her hair? Teddy, teddy boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quiff, yeah, I used to go to like the barber and get my hair cut for free, Jerry, Jerry Lardner. Um, you know, and Jerry would, I'd sit there and all these old fellas, when I think back, like, you know, 1990, and I'd sit there and I'd be like, oh, Jerry, can I just get number two or number three at the back and in my mercy uniform? Like, when I think of it, it was quite courageous. Like, I was quite courageous as a girl. Like, well, that's why I said I, I didn't fall into the stereotypical what a girl should be, you know, and I, I still don't. <laughs> the thing is, I used to get my hair cut in Jerry's as well, and I think Jerry Lardner was a great guy like that because... He had a very, he had a great kind of openness about him. So I think he probably had other teenagers like you coming in and not Manny, but, you yeah. know, and maybe, maybe Annie, there was one or two girls, but I think he was the best barber you could have gone to to understand that yeah. situation. Oh, definitely. Because, yeah, he never blinked an eyelid, <laughs> I think, when I first walked in. Um, and that was, yeah, no, definitely I said that kind of um and it's not like you're out to shock people, but it, it was just your identity, I suppose. That was my identity at the time. No, I never actually, when I think of it now, like, I, yeah, there was probably people who slagged me or laughed at me. I don't know. But I didn't care, actually. I was totally oblivious to, yeah, I thought as cool yeah. as anything. Like, I was so cool, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. still am. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not as cool, well, but I was, yeah, I was cool. <laughs> yeah, you just have to get the quiff again now on the number two. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. And so, so... You know, obviously, growing up in Curfin, then, you know, as a teenager and stuff, did you feel, you know, how did you feel in the in the village? Because it was a small village and it it's bigger now, but it was very small that time. Did you feel like you had to escape and, you know, was Tum or Galway? Where did you feel like you wanted to be? Um, yeah, I suppose everyone wants to escape, especially if you live outside of a town or live anywhere. I suppose you always want to escape. Um, yeah, well, I suppose I didn't hang around with any of my, like, people who lived in the village, you know, because, um, I mean, I knew, well, I did actually, sorry, yeah, I, like, yeah, I'm just thinking of different years, but no, I did, I was friends with the girl, <laughs> the neighbour and another girl back the road, um, yeah, Tune, we went to Tune, but I mean, I was like that, I was, I mean, we used to hitch everywhere, I hitched up to Galway, like 14, 15, we'd hitch up together to Salt Hill, um, I used to go up to Galway to the markets a lot, I was reminded of that the other night, actually, because I met this couple who used to sell cardigans on the street. He had a kind of a quiff. They were kind of like rockabilly types. And I used to meet them every Saturday to buy like the Morrissey type cardigans off them. And um, then I, um, sorry, my, my earphone. And then I kind of became friends with them. And I'd kind of, um, they might go for their lunch and I'd mind their stall on the street. You know, that kind of way. So, um, oh, yeah. So it was nice just kind of meeting unusual people, like minds, I suppose it's like that, isn't it? You're like, oh, you're a bit like me. Um, but no, definitely Tune, yeah. I mean, I started working when I was 15 in Dunn's, like my two sisters <laughs> as well, which was brilliant. Dunn's paid, paid brilliantly, actually, at the time. And um, like that, yeah, take the bus down to Tune and go out and Tune then for the nightclub. And um, so, yeah, I mean, we, no, we had a good, yeah, we, we were... We were going out, like by 16, we were going to the nightclubs. You know, we'd go to the pub for a few pints and then we'd go to the nightclub afterwards. And then we'd either miss the bus home because we wanted to go to Supermax. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. And and so then for you getting out of, you know, moving out of home, um, obviously probably came about through college and university. So did you, you know, when you were 16, 17, 
had you already decided what you want to do in university, what you wanted to do in university? Had you th- thought, I want to do acting, I want to do art? What, what, how was your head thinking when you were like in the last year? Well, you see, the, the acting thing wasn't, I mean, the acting thing it wasn't like, that's what you have to go back. When I was in sixth class, I think we did, we were doing Snow White. And, and they always put on, actually, in Cumber, they put on really good productions and they were always really interesting. I just found it was always the same people. And again, I wasn't that confident and I felt like my voice hadn't come in. You know, that kind of way I was still quite shy and whatever, you know, just lacking self-esteem and confidence. But in sixth class, I auditioned for Snow White, for The Wicked Stepmother, sorry. And I got her and I was like, oh my God. And I played a blinder like to this day. I mean, that was my first major acting role. I played a blinder with her, you know. And I always remember that. And I remember a teacher saying to my mother, God, we never knew Andrea could act. And I was thinking, well, because you never really asked, yeah, did you? Yeah, you know, yeah. again, it's that thing in school. You're like, you never really checked to see if I had the desire to do it, you know? Because again, it's always the confident kids that get to do everything. Or even in life, it's the confident people who jump up first, you know? Um, so anyway, but that kind of true secondary, it was all musicals and opera in the mercy with the jarlets and stuff. And that wasn't my thing at all. I was in the choir, you know, I sang in the choir. But we did, like, I hung around with a group of friends, kind of, cool cool gang that we were planning one time to make a kind of an American sitcom type thing um, but it never materialised and I think I was playing the lead Chelsea this character called Chelsea never happened but anyway so for me I was um, you know it was art art was my thing because I was I was good at art I was good at drawing and I kind of I probably would have been good at other things but I just felt like yeah I'm going to be an artist um, and then I was working in Leave Insert. I worked up to May, I think, of Leaving Cert. And I thought, shit, I better leave now and <laughs> study for the Leaving Cert. And um, I crammed in some study. I mean, I didn't study at all, but I was, it was kind of a fluke. Some of the stuff that came up in my Leaving Cert was kind of some of the chapters, especially like in geography. <laughs> so I, I actually, no, I did okay in my Leaving Cert. Looking back, I could have done way better if I'd studied. But I knew I was either going to do art or arts. And I knew I didn't have the points for arts because I didn't study. So it was art. And that was all I wanted. That I knew, you know, that was that was me. So I got into art college. That was in Galway. You went to art college in Galway, didn't you? The, when it was the RTC. Yeah, it's now the junior yeah. team. You know, when it was the old out of the RTC, when we were kind of like the <laughs> down, push down the corridor. It was all engineering. <laughs> it was like all these yeah, yeah. crazy, crazy cookie. <laughs> and uh, did, so you were, did you... you that was was it fine art or graphics art it was fine wasn't it fine art no it was um i don't even know what kind it was <laughs> i did sculpture it was um, okay no you kind of went in with port you know you got based on your portfolio and whatever you did for your leaving cert art exam and um yeah i think we tried a bit of everything because i remember trying textiles and painting and sculpture and you tried everything and then you kind of decided and then they suppose they said look so i got into sculpture but looking back i'd love to have done painting because I was very, very much more about color and composition. I did sculpture and I was totally lost. I was like, we had our studios with, I mean, it was so conceptual and I'm pretty conceptual anyway in my head, you know, I'm, I'm pretty abstract. So I, I just, my, my lecturer Lachlan used to say, Kelly, you're like smoke. Cause I'd be gone the minute he'd arrive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd be gone. <laughs> he'd be like, where is she? She's like yeah. smoke. Or I'd be, um, Dean Kelly, who Dean is a brilliant artist in Galway. Dean was in my Dean brought in this white butter. His father, I think, was working or something, and he got this lump of white butter, and I was carving something out of it. I was like, "Wow, that's really interesting." 
and or I was reading a book on humanities and he came in and he was like, you want to, if you want to read, do, you know, study subjects like that, go to the university. And I was like, but is this not all connected? That's the way I was like, yeah. shouldn't art be like universal and everything? It was just, yeah, I, I couldn't. I was 17 and I couldn't, um, couldn't find my feet within it. How long did you do that for before you had enough of that? Or did you say, I, I want to move on? No, I was, um, I think after the first year in art college, I, a friend of our sister um, who worked in the Galway Art Centre said, Galway Youth Theatre, we're looking for people to join. And she said, oh, I think you'd be great for it, Andrea. And I was like, really? Um, and I, I suppose I hadn't really, like it, in my art, it was kind of veering towards performance art, but not really, you know, using myself in art. But um, I went for the audition for Galway Youth Theatre and I got in. So I... Um, yeah, I went on that journey then with the youth theatre was just amazing. Like it was just, you know, because you were um, physically and it was practical and you were doing stuff and using your voice and your body and it was just amazing. And I got great encouragement. I remember looking back, obviously I was three years older than you, whatever, but I think that was kind of where you started to form your, like your real identity of who you were going to become, for, from my opinion, because obviously, you know, as a teenager, you're discovering who you want to be and you're influenced by music and different kind of art and stuff. But I think for you, when I look back, um, the Goa Youth Theatre was like a pinnacle, a pivotal point, I should say, in your career, because yeah. I think it pointed you in a direction but it kind of gave you some more self-belief and it's like, oh, wow, I can really do this. Oh, yes, Simon, definitely. I mean, the encouragement. I suppose that came from like, I think the first show we got, I got the lead role in it. So I was like, I was sharing, actually, there's two of us sharing it. It was Rosalind and As You Like It. So again, it was that validation, which unfortunately, you know, you shouldn't need that, but we do, we're human. So um, yeah, the encouragement, and I think that reassurance to continue and to keep going, but even though I still I still didn't have the same confidence that I wished I had looking back. But obviously, that's just, you know, who we are and, and coming from kind of our lives. And, um, you know, it's not even confidence. Self-esteem is probably the thing that was more lacking, you know. Um, but yeah, definitely go with youth theatre. But I only did a year ago with youth theatre, actually. I, I bailed out of that as well. I was, I was a little bit of a like, ah, I had enough now, you know. <laughs> I'm bored, bored to go all the way. So I, I remember they were doing the Crucible, actually, and someone was saying, oh, Andrew, you'd be brilliant for Abigail. You know, the Winona Ryder part. And, but no, I, I wanted to move. I moved to Edinburgh when I was 21 then. So, like, why Edinburgh? Did did you meet somebody in Galway that said, oh, you should go to Edinburgh? What, what, what happened that made you want to go to Edinburgh? No, I think I probably wanted to go to London or further afield, but I didn't speak any European languages. So I was like, that's never going to happen. And London, I was like, oh, God, that'd be just too, you know, expensive or whatever. I was too frightened. Um, no, we just went, I think it was January, which was an odd time to go to Edinburgh. Myself and um, two other friends went to um, Edinburgh for me to kind of look about like moving there and spreading my wings. And on the very first night there, one of her friends, Caroline, met her life partner, who she's with like 20 years later. So I was like, her destiny was interlinked with mine. I was like, there was I going to find my destiny. And she finds the man she's going to spend the next 20 years with. So, um, but I did end up moving over there a few months later. She moved before me, actually. She went, you know, and then I went over there and lived for a few months. And then, um, came back with a Swedish friend and a kind of an impromptu, you know, sorry, like we came back and yeah, yeah. lost, I lost my job and there was a whole kind of drama, wasn't there? And I lost my job and I was like, well, sure, no point going back. <laughs> but I did have to go back though, because my mother and my aunt and 
uncle were coming over to visit for a few days. So I had to go back just to kind of play host. And then I went, I went back with them on the return ticket and left. <laughs> no, no responsibility. It was great. No responsibility. You know, that's why I said. I was 21. That, that, that's like your, your parent. you say, oh, I'm living in London and your parents come to meet you and you're like, yeah, yeah, you can come. I'm staying in a hotel at the moment. You can come. And they're like, you don't have an apartment. No, no, just meet me in the Mayfair in London. Yeah. And then you're like, I'm going to go back with you guys. And they're like, are you really living in London? <laughs> yeah, because it was just, no, look, I was just, I was so irresponsible. I mean, I was totally irresponsible. You know, I so bad with money and bad with everything you know like holding down jobs and um yeah just yeah quite irresponsible um but but then again as they say that thing of destiny i came back and i met um a guy called pat actually he, he's he's passed now pat nolan and i met him in nocton's and pat had worked in the town hall theater in, in lighting wasn't it and we knew pat as well from our friend her sister's and Pat had said to me, um, oh, they're casting Eclipsed about the Magdalene play um, and they're casting and they're for Galway actresses. So he said, you should, you should apply for it. And I was like, geez, I'm just back from Edinburgh. No, was that with Druid? No, that was Town Hall Theatre production. Oh, oh Town yeah. Hall Theatre, sorry. So I did. I sent in my CV and stuff, even though I'd only kind of GYT was what I'd done. I had no other experience as such. Um, and um, yeah, I made a few trips up to Dublin, I think, to kind of convince the director that I you know, I was ready to be part of this or whatever. And uh, I got cast. So I got, that was my first professional gig for, I did like a three month tour of Ireland and stuff. And it was amazing. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. All female cast. And it was just, and wonderful actors. And oh, it was just amazing. Yeah, brilliant time. A lot of in the pubs. Back then in the theatre, you see, just went to the pub every night, pretty much. Not everybody, but a lot of people did. So, you know, tours, there's not a lot of memories of tours. <laughs> I think what, when people look back, the theatre is its own pub, uh, or sorry, the pub, the pub is its own theatre, I should say. I think there's the yeah. theatre you everybody goes to see, and then the fans go to the pub, and the, of course the actors go to the pub, and it's a different kind of theatre. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely, because it's that, especially for actors, you can just relax and have a laugh afterwards, because that's what I said, being in the show and on stage for a live audience is a huge responsibility, you know, so you have to, you, you take it very seriously. Um, yeah. But I think what happened, you, sorry, Simon, what happened is as time went on, it was kind of like, no, as actors, you have to take both seriously. You know what I mean? You do the job, but you also have to mind yourself because of people's mental health and everything as well. And um, Yeah, and, and you reminded me of, um, obviously, we had Donal on the show, Donal O'Donoghue, a few, yeah. you know, a, few, a month, two months ago or so. And um, I remember talking to Donal and about the whole kind of lovey thing, you know, where where actors can't turn it off when they come off the stage or come off the set. And he said, yeah, he said, you know, sometimes you're like, come on, turn it off. You know, we're finished now. It's yeah. we're not the camera's not rolling anymore. Did you discover that at an early age too when you started acting? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes that was just a bit of mad, like between that, it's just that energy, you know, and especially if you get into like a bit of banter and a bit of comedy with each other, you know, like there'd be, like in GYT, I know, especially in the pub after the Galway Arms, the crack, like, because someone might have created a, ca a character three weeks ago and this character now is fully alive in the pub and then everyone else is responding to it. And I know it was hard for other people who are just there and go, what the hell? Because, you know, it's like, it's like you're going, I'm not in on the joke. And actors can be a bit like, oh, yeah, that's your fault, you know, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, but no, I think I would always, I think, I, I think I'm a kind of person who would try to include everyone. I don't think I'd, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like anyone to kind of sit in there going, you know. 
No, but it's a, it's a different thing, I think, because obviously I remember when you were in Dublin later on and going out some night. And I mean, we, with actors and actresses, they're, you know, great people, but some of them obviously are vying for more attention than others, even in the pub. So, so the point is for people who are non-actors or who aren't in that society, they notice it more. Maybe they're like, wow, this is crazy, you know? Well, I suppose, Simon, you see, the thing is, I suppose actors will apologize for each other because like, I mean, it's not easy to be an actor and the majority of actors are very insecure and that the facade you see out there is usually not them at all. And I mean, I've known plenty of actors who've been like, you know, and they've been the most kind of insecure, deflated people behind it all. So it's, it's, and that's hard though. That's a journey. And then the whole pressure of networking and like as a young actor, you know, you think like, I used to think, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not, um, enough of a, like an ex an, what do you call it? extrovert mm. you know I, I can't just walk up to someone and say oh hi i'm andrea you yeah. know because it's not me i'm like you know if they like me they like me and there's all these kind of critical things you say about yourself or you feel in the industry and i suppose the longer you're in it they still exist but you just start to go do you know what and it's it's the same thing i suppose it's just it's like getting older you care less you give less of a shit about stuff that used to matter when you're young but again it's just trying to fit in isn't it and i suppose actors it's trying to fit into a kind of a, a surreal environment anyway, because every, it's it's like you could do a show with, with a group of actors and tour with them for six months. But you could meet those people again down the line and you don't even know each other or you don't have anything. You know, there's no um, there's no attachment. It's kind of very fleeting. It's like, see you later, you know, on to the next job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, so, you know, obviously after you did Eclipse then, what was next? Did you think, I want to kind of study acting more? How did you move on into going to Trinity? Um, after Eclipse, I mean, I was always quite interested in kind of clown and physical theatre. I mean, we did a lot in Galway. We were always dressed up and going on the streets or doing kind of clowny stuff or anything. You know, in Galway, really, you could do that in Galway, which is brilliant. Um, after Eclipse, <coughs> I got involved. There was Olivia, a French director who lived in Galway, and Jay, Jay Ryan, who's a really good um performer and he's got the, the fairy man on TV, living with the fairy. And Jay's just a brilliant comic actor. He's an actor of clown, like he's just brilliant. And um, there was a group of us and we started um, La Troupe Tempête and it was kind of French physical theatre and Ollie was going to direct and write. So I think I had finished Eclipsed a few months ago and I was kind of in my head like becoming a professional actress. I got my agent in Dublin and I was kind of, and then I got involved with this group, which was very much me as well. And we put on a show called The Blue Beard at the Tide Yard, which was a complete flop. <laughs> it was just like the show was about, the, the script was about this thick and we weren't ready on the opening night. And it, it was full of kind of really ambitious stuff. But anyway, the show was just gas. I think like it was three hours long. Some of the audience were asleep. I'd written up a list of scenes backstage. We were running on. We didn't know where we were meant to be with Sinead Hackett and Regan. And it was just, it was gas. But I mean, I wouldn't change it for the world. It was like, it was just calamity. And, and you know, they talk about, uh, what do they call it? Um, corpsing on stage. You know, corpsing is like, well, I mean, we corpsed like halfway through that play. Um, so that, and then comedy improv, which I'd done as well. They were just great skills to have because they kind of taught you how not to take yourself too seriously, you know? Yeah, yeah. So so you moved on then from that and, um, you know, that was kind of, I suppose that was during the summer months you did the, the Blue Beard in the Tyviark. So was were you kind of, did you go to college the same year then to Trinity or what happened? No, no, I was in Galway till, I went to college at 23. 
So okay. Involved, yeah, so we were kind of bumming around on the door, just being actors and doing stuff. I wasn't confident, Simon, you see, even though I had my agent in Dublin, I just didn't really know anyone in Dublin. I wasn't ready to move there. I didn't know how. And I just lacked the confidence in myself, you know. Um, looking back, I wish I had gone, you know, because there was people like, I, you know, but I suppose I was just on that journey. But the funny thing is going back to, again, this is the, the, I love these connections. When I passed second year in sculpture, I remember they said to me at the time, do you know there's a, an acting course in Dublin in Trinity? And I was like, Trinity, like doctors and, you know, people go to Trinity. I would never get into Trinity. I don't, you know, go all the way village girl from Corrafin, like no money and nothing, you know? I was like, that's never going to happen. So kind of just pushed that off. I brushed it off. And then, um, yeah, it was years later. Then I think it was myself, Selena and Jay. And we were all like, we want to get out of Galway. We want to further our careers. We want to train. We want to do stuff. So we were all applied at the same time. Selena applied for the UK. Jay had applied for the Gaiety in Dublin, and I applied for Trinity. I also applied for Rad and the Bristol Old Vic, but I didn't get them. But I, I kind of, I was a, I was a little bit of a self saboteur as well at that stage. I wasn't taking myself too seriously, and I should have been a bit more, um, what do you call it? D- disciplined or disciplined? Yeah, I lacked discipline. I lacked not. I didn't lack discipline in my acting, but I lacked discipline in my life. Which obviously would impact my acting. So, um, so anyway, so yeah, so I auditioned for Trinity and I got that. So, um, that was that whole new kind of journey going to start. It was pretty selective, wasn't it? I mean, that process for Trinity because I, you know, I remember back obviously when you got it, but speaking to Donald a few weeks ago, you know, and he, when he was saying he got in obviously the same time as you and, but it, there wasn't that many places, so it was selective enough, wasn't it, the process? Yeah, well, there was only 14 places, and there was a drama and theatre studies course, you see, which was four years, and then our course was the Bachelor in Acting, which was three years, just acting, movement, dance, voice. So it was really um, specific and precise to kind of the art of acting, which was just exactly what most of us, <clears throat> what I was after anyway. Um, and... Yeah, it was tough to get in. I think so. Yeah. I mean, that's why I laugh, you know, because I actually like this. I'm, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I mean, I was out the night before my audition till about three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> and I was at a park. I think it was a Drew Davey And I was like, I have to get the bus to Dublin in the morning. And I missed the first bus. And then I got the next bus. And at the time, I remember CityLink, they had their buses out. They weren't as frequent. It was kind of you had to wait for an hour, maybe. But I got on the next bus and you had to have a little passport picture and something else. I didn't even have that done. And I rocked up to Trinity at 20 to 1. My audition was at 10 past 1. A group audition first. And I said to the girl, I said, oh, I'm really sorry. I don't have my picture on that. You know, and she's like, you can give it to us later. So I went in and I mean, I was so hungover. And I think to this day, like, I went in and did the group audition. And, but like that again, I met uh, Ruth McGill, who's another actress. I met Ruth in the lobby, the foyer where we were waiting. And I remember she was wearing this kind of little, like, crucifix, wooden kind of crucifix bracelet from Donegal. She's one of those Donegal fairies. And um, I met her, and I just had this feeling that I was going to know her. You know that, again, that sense. I was like, I just felt like we were going to kind of have a connection. And then as the day went on and the auditions went on, you get called back for the next one, and then you do your two monologues for the, not the judges, the X-Factor judges, for, for the tutors. And... Yeah, so it's a whole process. So they're kind of, they're looking at the dynamic, obviously, of the people and the, and the group and the politics. And he, I was 23, so I thought I was ancient compared to, like, say, Donald was 17, I think, was he? 
um, and Gail and that. So um, that was it, yeah. So went home that day and then I think got a phone call a few days later and or a week later or whatever. And so I was kind of like, they were probably going, we better bring this one in and tame her, you know. <laughs> she has something we want. We just don't know if we want it. <laughs> um, yeah. So obviously, I mean, from that, thing i mean you you've you met a lot of great friends and it kind of was another pivotal moment in your life because obviously you know that that trinity has produced some great actors and actresses and you know as a, a lot of those people in your class have gone on to do great things and everything so you know did that was how many years ago 20 years ago no how many years ago did you do trinity yeah, 21, is it? Oh, well, two, yeah, 2003 we graduated. I know, yeah, that's a bit mad, actually, because you're like, oh, my God. You know? Have you have you ever had a 20-year reunion? No. No, I was kind of trying to organise one last year, I think, but uh, then lockdown happened. But, no, we definitely were due one. Our class were kind of a mixed bag. We were different age groups, and we were we used to call ourselves the experiment because we were kind of, you could draw a circle around Ireland. We were from all different places. And we were just like, we were a bit bold, you know, like we went to college every day at nine o'clock. We were there, but you don't know what state we might end up in sometimes, you know, some of us, not all of us. But yeah, we, we would all be a great crack. Like we were, we were a bit wild. But um, yeah, no, it was brilliant. I wouldn't change it for the world. I know some people might have mixed opinions about the course and that thing. Well, you know, people say, oh, sometimes these courses break you down or they, you know, to build you up again. Again, it's all perspective, isn't it, Simon? It's how you look at stuff and go. For me, I, I thought it was wonderful. I, I just got so much from it. Um, I was I was a bit of a wreck, I think, quite honestly, especially when I put into that position where I had to be kind of disciplined and be around people for like, it was same year Big Brother came out. So we were like, this is like a Big Brother experiment. Yeah. It was intense. It was really intense. It, it's funny though you say that because I think sometimes, whether it's through music or acting, whatever, sometimes some people feel that if you're naturally good at something and then you go to a place that says, oh, we'll make you better, they're kind of, it's. I don't want to call it like a factory, but they have set methods and, and sometimes people think that they might take the natural ability out of you and say, no, this is how it should be done. So for some people, they could think, oh, it's the best course in the world, but others could be critical because they're like, they're trained, they're putting too much training into you. I don't think it's even that because I, I know that and I've heard a lot of that and that's in everything you could, but I just think it comes down to your own personal experience and where you are in life and for some people, those courses, because I was 23, I was older. And in my head, I was really old. You know, when you're 23, you think you're ancient. Um, yeah. So I was ready probably for certain. I, I wasn't in lots of ways, but in other ways, I was ready. As if I was 17, like in sculpture, I mightn't have been ready. Um, so I got, I took from it. It's like going back to university, you know, when you're older. You kind of can take things. It's that critical thinking has developed a bit more. And um no, I, I love the experience. No, definitely. I, I mean, for me, it just was, um, it was tough. Yeah. And there was some times you just went, you want to stick your fingers up at them and say, leave me alone, you know, because I didn't always agree with what they, how they worked. And I didn't, and, and they're only, but again, like that, they're only human as well. Our tutors had their own stuff going on. So we were all, you know, all just whatever you call them, muddling through, you know. <laughs> when you finished, obviously, or, or even maybe during that whole process, were were the people in your class getting acting gigs or were they allowed to take acting jobs? 
No, you weren't. You weren't really allowed to take work. Now, I know in some of the other years, some people maybe have joined and then they might have got work and they left. But pretty much, no, if you were kind of in, you were there to commit to it. And you see, that's, that's really important because when you build an ensemble and you're working on something and then Johnny or Mary is missing two days, you're like, come on. So it was more about mm. that. It's about the ensemble. I think that's the, you know, drama school, especially our experience, the one in the course in Trinity, it wasn't about the business of building an actor for the industry. It was more about building the actor for the actor, you know, and for the ensemble. That's what I, I take from it anyway, and how to, um, you know, not and not even how to be an actor, because obviously we were actors. But for me, it was that holistic thing. That's the only way I can describe it. It's like being, it was a holistic, a holistic, um, an holistic experience. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And so, you know, after that, then, when you started moving into the world of professional acting and stuff, you had an agent and, and you were looking for work. Was it very difficult to get roles? You know, at you were maybe what? You, you finished when you were 26, 25? No? 23, I started. Yeah, around 26, gone 27. Was it hard to get roles then after you came out or what was it like? Well, when I left, actually, I mean, I did a fantastic role in the... the uh, final show for Trinity, but I didn't get an, an, an agent from it, which I was really shocked, actually. <laughs> not, not that my ego was shocked, but I was just shocked because I just spent three years and paid money as well at a certain time for to be there and devoted my time and my life force to this course, expecting to come out and be like, you know, um, yeah, to like kind of walk, not walk into work, but you know, that people would be like, hey, come on, we're waiting for you. We're ready. We're ready. You know, you've done your time. Come on. And it wasn't like that at all. So ex explain the, the process there, because when you do your final show and you're in your final year, is it kind of like at a football game where you have the the guys, you know, looking to give you a trial? Was there agents at the shows looking for actors? Oh, yeah, because you do three professional shows. They're called, you kind of showcases from like Christmas, Easter, and then you play different characters and everyone gets a chance to play kind of lead roles. You know, everyone gets to showcase themselves. And, and then you work in the ensemble as well. So, um, yeah, so agents will be coming to look and see who's on, who's there to go on their books. So I think for me, because I was a bit older, this was the thing as well, because there was actresses who, who were my age, but they had actually been to drama school when they were 20, or 21 or 22. So I was going to be competing with these actresses who were already well-established, you know what I mean? So, and then if I wasn't new enough to, you know, to the agents or if I didn't have a specific look or something they wanted, then obviously um, I wasn't going to be of much interest to them probably, you know. Um, but I didn't know. I got an agent after. I didn't get an agent from the show, but I did. I chased someone down and I got her. And, um, yeah, again, it was um, you just like that. You know, you're just going out into the professional industry then kind of seeing what happens and, and that's a totally new world because that was the thing sometimes in drama schools, like in our course, especially some people were like, well, they didn't prepare us for the acting world or the industry or the business or the networking. So I think in courses nowadays, they've learned an awful lot since we were in drama school about kind of packaging it up so that, you know, you've got that holistic sense of training, a really good training, but you're also now catering for the film world. You're catering for, you know, actors to go out and be professional professional in their business and know how to it's different isn't it social media and everything how to market yourself when you look back now uh however many months it took you to kind of get a gig or get a you know a show 
what do you remember then as being the first show? Was it theatre or? No, I actually, no, I didn't. I always thought, again, it was that thing of going, I thought I'm a theatre actor, you know, I'm, I'm not TV because, you know, in my head I thought, well, I'm too fat, even though I wasn't. You know, I was like, I'm too fat to be a theatre actor and I'm not, you know, this or that and I'm too much of a strong voice and I'm too much of a strong character. You know, I'm a theatre actress, you know, and all these kind of misconceptions and beliefs you've heard somewhere and they don't really mean anything because it's all a look copy shite, basically. But um, then I... Um, no, I think it was. Oh no, sorry, actually, no. I yes, oh no, I did. I was it that. Yeah, I did. Druid were casting for um, they were doing the, the Tinker's Wedding and the Well of the Saints. Mick Lally was in it, Marie Mullen, and there was. I think I might have auditioned for the Tinker's Wedding, but I didn't get it. I think Norma Sheehan got that character at that time, but um, I got offered the part of the village girl. It was one line. I had a little short scene with Mick Lally, and. Um, but it was great. We went on a tour and everything around Ireland and stuff. And it was working with Druid. So it was fantastic. You know, it was just brilliant. And I knew some of the people in the cast already. And um, so that was my first. Yeah, I think that was 2004. Oh my God, I'm terrible with dates. But um, so that was, yeah, that was an experience. And to be working with Druid, you know, and as a Galway actress to be working with Druid as well was really. Yeah. Then I think while we were on tour, um. We were on tour, Pure Mule was being cast. And I had done, there's a play called Eden and Eugene O'Brien who, who wrote Pure Mule wrote Eden. And Eden's a two-handed character set kind of in the Midlands in in, um, in that kind of area and stuff, uh, about a couple. And um, I was pretty familiar with the accent because I had done an Arts Council audition. I think they were giving you some money or something. You had to do a little monologue, you know, like Grant. And I got some money. So I kind of had a familiarity with that accent. So I remember at the time the girls in the cast in, in Druid were, they were saying we have to do the auditions for this play, for this TV thing. And at the time I was thinking, why is my agent sending me? Like, you know, I'm, and I was like, and I know that accent really well. Like I've been working on it. But again, I wasn't, I was only kind of starting out. You know, I wasn't, I didn't have a profile again, I suppose that way. So, you know, they didn't ask for me. Um, so I helped the girls with their accents. I remember their speeches, their audition, you know, pieces for the TV show. I helped them with that, those. And then I think I did say to my agent, could you put me up for that or whatever? So I think she put me up. So it was kind of quite late. And then they were just casting the, the smaller supporting characters, you know. Um, and I got cast then as Anya, the, the girl who lives in the, the flat above the video hut. <laughs> P- Pure Mule was County Loud there, no? No, County Offaly. County oh, Offaly, okay. Banner, yeah, Banner. Banner, Banner, okay. So, yeah, there was a controversy with the accents. Some people were saying, oh, the accents are terrible. And some people, you know, but look, you, you, you know, you're never going to get it right. I think no one's ever going to get it right because actors are from all over. And, um, but Pure Mule was brilliant. I mean, Jesus, I filmed down there for a week, I think, in Banner. And, um, and Tom, Tom Murphy was who I was working opposite. It was my first time on TV and I had a couple scenes with Tom. Um, Tom died a couple of years afterwards and just like an amazing actor and such a gentleman, just a lovely guy. So for me, I, I just felt it was such a blessing to work with him because he was so kind and so generous and so lovely, wonderful actor. Um, but the whole experience, I mean, the crack, like geez, it was just brilliant. It was just brilliant. And um, I suppose that energy that's in Pure Mule was kind of there with everyone else, you know, in the, the making of it. We all knew we were making something kind of quite different and quite... Um, 
unique. It would be funny because I remember, obviously, when it was on, it, it was a great show. And I mean, there was so much happening, the affairs between the, the, the guy and the guard's wife and this kind of stuff. It would be great to see that show done now, you know, whatever it was, 20 years later or whatever, how many years. It would be great to see those characters now in their modern, like in their current phase, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, I know there was definitely, I mean, there was probably, you know, I suppose in every place, I think in Ireland, and I know myself when I watch stuff, you go, God, why is everything always so stereotypical? But we are a bit stereotypical sometimes, you know, we are, we sometimes are parodies of ourselves, you know, we think we're yes, not, yeah. that we're not as bad as what's at Mountain Time or whatever that film was, but uh, but we are a little bit, like that's just said in Pure Mule, you go, some of it, yeah, there is characters, Um. I mean, that was a wonderful gig. I love that. I love the character I was playing, Anya. But at that time for me, sometimes I got really lovely characters, but they never had any story. <laughs> I was like, I was all kind of like, oh, well, someone just, you know, I, I just never had the route into like, to showcasing my work or, um, you know, people say, oh, God, you were great or you played that really well, but they never, my characters never had a storyline. They never evolved. No, and it was a shame because I never kind of got to, to, to do what I can do. And I just, Again, look, that's just opportunity. That's just the way, that's the way the dice rolls. Isn't that what they say, you know? <laughs> so from there, you know, obviously you're over the years then doing TV work and bits of TV work here and, and theatre work. Did you kind of, did you, I suppose, I was going to ask you, did you have a preference over theatre work or film work or whatever? But, you know, you could probably say, well, I didn't get enough TV work or enough film work to have a preference. But was, is there one of them that's your favourite? No, but it, again, that's why I think something has changed. And it's even this conversation like theatre and film. Yeah, obviously, they're very different mediums, but they're very similar. Like to an actor, it's just stepping into a different kind of energy. That's what I find. Years ago, it was always that, like, you're a theatre actor, you're a film. Now people can cross over. Yes, sometimes you can get seen as one or the other, and people go, oh, no, they're just theatre. You know, they can't imagine. Because a lot of the time in casting or producing uh, producing something, when you go in for an audition, it's about them kind of imagining you as the character or straight away you are the character. But if they have to work too hard and they can't see it or believe it, you have to hope in hell, basically. Yeah, yeah. But the other thing is too, it's kind of like if you're a musician, you can play one song on video and do it really well. But if you have to do five or six songs in a row, it's a performance and maybe you have more flaws. So with TV work, I mean, it's edited and, you know, things can be, you can do different takes. But with with live theatre, you have the momentum, you have to keep it going and you have to be on form, don't you? You can't really stop and say, you can't say, can we do that again? Oh, yeah. Well, I suppose... <laughs> No, I, yeah, but I live theatre. That's what I said. It's that thing about it's mm. physical. It's like being an athlete. That's what the, live theatre, being a, a theatre actor. You know, imagine even think of the West End where people have to perform like nearly 350 shows a year. Yeah, or, yeah every night for a year or whatever. Um, but it's that thing, yeah, you have to be like an athlete. I mean, that's why most actors, you have to be fit or you have to be in good physical shape if you're if you're working to that routine. With TV and film, you do as well, but not as much. You know, there could be some character actors that don't need to be, you know, they just rock up and do the work. Like, they don't have to be, you know, <laughs> have done their 100 push-ups. You know, obviously, you you went back, you lived in London for a few years then, and and you, you know, you met Dara, your husband, and you started your family there. When you were in London, um, did you... 
you know, did you feel like, okay, I'm going to take the next step in my acting? Or did you kind of say, I'm going to stop a little, or maybe it wasn't a conscious thought to have a family? How did that kind of come about for you? Well, no, I was 29 because I, I kind of, like that I said, I lived in, I, I was kind of working, I did a bit of TV. So like that with Pure Mule, Prosperity, The Clinic. And then um, then I moved up to Belfast for a little while just to get away from Dublin, kind of. I, again, I was like, that was a bit almost like I didn't, a bit of a rover, you know, I didn't want to settle anywhere. And um, came back from Belfast and then to Dublin for another year, I think, to do. Maybe I did some TV then. And then, like, I was 29 and I think um, our father died actually the year before. Oh, no, he died in 2005, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was around. Yeah. yeah, sorry. A year, I went home to live with my mother. Yeah, our mother for a little while after our father died. And then I was kind of like, what now? And I just thought Dublin, again, it, it's just, I suppose it's it's the thing in Ireland. It's just the wheel turns slowly. That's the way I kind of describe it. And I was just, I had the energy I needed to kind of go. So I went to London. Yeah, to be an actor, but I only had about 300 quid in my pocket. I had an Irish agent, but it never kind of materialized that anything was set up over in the UK. Not that it was her problem or my, it just, again, I was a bit disorganized. I was kind of living, living off the cuff, you know? And, um, yeah, pretty much went to the UK with the aspirations to, to you know, get into acting. But it's very hard to go there, especially then with no agent and no money. <laughs> and, uh, so I just ended up, yeah, kind of ended up working and then met my husband about three or four weeks into living there. And um, that was it kind of then. Yeah, I suppose that independent career woman kind of went a little bit to the side, even though I did stuff. I, I did pursue different projects. But again, the, the high profile, like really, it's hard, you know, that, that's a t- tough gig in London. So yeah, I suppose I was kind of focusing on my relationship. And then my son came along when I was there. And um, yeah, so I kind of was looking at other things. And then I went back and did a dance, a contemporary dance course part time when he was about a year old, because I'm very interested. Again, it was, you know, that was a continuation of my training in Trinity. I was, I was, I was then, I still am very interested in as I say, movement and physical theatre and the holistic things and voice. And I applied to do a master's in voice and Patsy Rodenberg, who'd be one of the famous voice teacher who's written books on it. She kind of said to me, I love your spirit. I love your energy, but she said, I don't think you're finished with the stage. Right. <laughs> that was it. I was like, I was a bit, I was a bit mixed. I was a bit like, why can't I, why can't I do a master's in voice as well as be, you know? Um, so yeah, just look, it, journey you know you just go on and you kind of go with this yeah do you feel though i mean that for actresses especially because obviously sometimes an actor can have a family you know but if his wife is staying home looking at the after the kids and he can kind of continue do you feel that it's much more difficult for an actress once she has children to continue because it's hard to have the time and the discipline and everything and have a family. If you're established, maybe it's different if you've loads of money in the bank. But if you're if you're still trying to find your place and trying to find gigs and you have kids and everything and you need to support them, I, I suppose it's really difficult, no? Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, it is. I mean, everything looking back in hindsight, it's easier. But at the beginning stages, I suppose, like we all know, becoming a parent, is a huge kind of shift of your whole personality, physicality for a woman. Anyway, for me, it was a huge change in my identity of myself, uh, physically and just everything spiritually, emotionally, and um, and that yeah, it, oh yeah, that to me it was a seismic shift actually, and it's something I've only realised kind of years, like my eldest is eleven, 
you know, it's only something I've, I always say it's kind of like coming out of a tunnel. It'll be a bit like coming out of lockdown, you know, that you just start to understand it better and you start to understand how you can make things work better and you can prioritize and you can, things just, yeah. And again, it, it's about being a good planner, isn't it? Or being organized. And, and as a parent, you kind of have to become organized. It's not something, some people love organization. I don't. But, um, so I think there was just loads of things, Simon, for me that were just like, like that, the responsibility of being a parent and, you know, um, but still hugely ambitious. And I'm still as ambitious. I'm, I'm probably getting more ambitious again as, as I come out of that, you know, as my children get older. But, um, yeah, all those things. And, and definitely for like women, especially for any, well, any actor, because it's the support, financial support. We don't have that. And then if your partner's working full time, you know, you're not available for auditions. You can't just drop everything and go. And a lot of the time it's that way, like for commercial work, it'd be like, can you be in Dublin tomorrow at 10 o'clock in the morning? And you'd be like, well, you know, hold on. And I just, uh, you know, so there's, but that has, I mean, that, that, that's opened up and that's changed a lot. Like there's a lot of groups like Mother Artist Maker in Ireland and there's a lot more supports now for people for childcare and a lot more um, awareness that, yeah, people have families. Like we're not just all single, independent. Do you think then that stops some actresses having children to later years because they're afraid it will hurt their career? I don't know. I mean, again, I think I, it's very hard to kind of say that for everybody because I think it's, again, it's a personal decision and it depends maybe if you meet somebody. If you don't meet somebody, then, you know, um, I don't know. I mean, I like because I was pretty ambitious and career-driven all my life, so... I suppose it just depends on the relationship and, and the decision you both make together. Yes, you do probably know deep down that it is going to be um it is going to be a risk to your career. But but you know what? I often that's why I often think I could be sitting here without a family or anything and I could be in the exact same position. You know what I mean? So it's kind of that thing, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. It's not it's quality over quantity. That's the way I look at it. In in this business it's about the quality of the work, not how much work you get. Obviously, yes, we need work, we need money. Uh, and you said now, obviously, you have two kids, Rohan and Chenna, and, and Dara is your husband. And what year did, did you and Dara met when in, when you were in London? Wasn't it in 2029 you were? Yeah, uh, 2006. Yeah. 2000, in a hostel, yeah, we were both living. I was living in the Backpackers Hostel because I'm a little bit of a, <laughs> a ruffian. Backpacker. <laughs> it was a nice hostel near yes. Hyde Park. Yes. Of, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not even a backpacker because I haven't travelled that much. But... Um, I, yeah, I quite happily live out of the bag. You know, I, I have that kind of mentality. Um, it doesn't bother me. Like, um, and I quite enjoy meeting all these people from all over. I get that sense of travel by talking to them, you know. <laughs> I'm like, like Colin, what's it in that vampires? The, yeah, the, yeah. I steal their travel stories, their energy. <laughs> um, you live through them. <laughs> I live them, yeah. Um, but... Um, yeah, the, but I mean, the hostel was brilliant as well. Like, I, I mean, I still stay in hostels, if even if I'm working in the UK and if it's on a budget or I'm happy to stay in hostels. I don't mind, like even, you know, yeah, sometimes I'm a bit older and I'm like, can I not have the top on, please? You know, <laughs> if I'm doing a physical workshop and I can't walk the next day. And I'm oh, like, my oh, hips, yeah. my <laughs> hips. But it is, you know, but it is something that you have to kind of, you're like, oh, I'm not. Or I'd be in, a, in a, a dorm room, like with loads of, you know, young travel and I'm going, Jesus, I'm actually not, you know. <laughs> I just want to go to sleep <laughs> but it's fine it's fine i i the way i look at it is kind of reserve judgment isn't it about everything you know we can't have it all our own way so then obviously when you came back from london you know you you came back with dara and the, the kids 
and you came back to Ireland, did you kind of say to yourself, okay, I'm going back to Ireland now, it's a new start. Will will I go back into acting, you know, because maybe I'm not doing as much now? Or what was your thoughts on that whole thing coming back to Ireland? Well, no, we weren't planning to, we weren't planning to come back to Ireland at all. That wasn't the plan. I mean, because I was with an agent in London. There was a gig came up in the Abbey and they were casting for the ensemble. And uh, my name was mentioned. And I thought, wow, I knew the director because I'd worked with her years ago in drama school. And I was like, God, that'd be quite an We were in the middle of moving house to see and we were kind of like, if things weren't going to plan and I was like, wow, maybe I'll, um, I was like, maybe I'll go and do the audition and just see what it's offering. See, is it feasible, you know, for me to go and work? Because again, I wanted to work. I was like, this is a wonderful opportunity to work with the Abbey again and kind of get back into the Irish scene. Um, so I went for the audition and then I think I got word that I got it. Now this was just part of the ensemble, you know, we were kind of like the, there was the main cast and then there was a group of six actors, really good actors, but we were the ensemble. But the funny thing with that whole show, again, it's these little, I love these little kind of things. I had applied like that in my kind of post-pregnancy, being at home watching Deal or No Deal, you know, with whatever's No, no Legends and all these shows. I must have applied online something to be Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And I had got the, the Abbey gig. I think I'd got a date to be there in July, June or July. I can't remember now specifically, but I got the dates to be there anyway to rehearse. And then I got a call from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, this Dublin, young Dublin fellow on the phone. And he was like, hi, this is Andrea, whatever. And I said, yeah. And he said, um, we got your application. He said, we'd love you to come on the show. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, I was in my head, I was going, who actually gets called from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I've never in my life known anyone. And then I was like, when? And I knew, because I've had lots of these situations in life where I'm going, when is it? And I'm just going, oh, it's like the universe gives me something. And then it goes, hold on a minute. I've got this as well. Which one do you want? And um, I, um, he, he said the dates and the dates were pretty much around when I would be starting the rehearsals with the Abbey. So I had to say, look, that's why I'm actually in, in um, Dublin doing a show, a theatre show. And I was like, can it change to the autumn? He said, oh, no, you only get the one chance, really. <laughs> he said, that's it. It was like, who wants to be an actor? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who wants to be poor? <laughs> like, Selena made this wonderful documentary years ago called Art, Fame or Fortune, when she was doing a course in Galway. And it was about, you know, Art, Fame or Fortune. And we were all very serious, like, acting is, it's all about acting, it's all about art. And I always come back to that, because I went and did this gig in, in Dublin, and it turned out to be actually bit of a nightmare financially for me and I lost a lot more but um it kind of upended everything our lives in London and financially and and it just again it was it was a catalyst wasn't it for us to come back to Ireland so that really that was the reason to come back to Ireland and um yeah kind of end up in Galway actually for a year which was lovely you know to be in the countryside with, and I had Shenna then and then the cat and the dog and to be near family and to have that kind of nice quality of life you know but again just very distant from Dublin and um we just felt like no we need to move we need to be closer to Dublin we just need for work you know I wasn't ready to kind of settle into that that kind of family life in that way so you went back to Dublin then were you kind of like okay I'm you know I know you had been in touch with it like while you were in London a little bit but did you feel like okay I'm back I'm here I'm ready everybody did you feel like you were ready to step back into your old shoes well cause, no because I wasn't in Dublin you see so that's the difference as well you're older you've got a family I'm not in the scene and a lot of my friends I mean I was seven years in London so 
you know, I went, I was the one who left, you know, and I can't remember, hey guys, I'm my mom. You know, they've all moved on with their lives and different stuff. Um, and then obviously I had my children. So again, like even when I came back to Ireland, the responsibilities, I, there wasn't half the things I could do that I, I would love to have done. But um, but no, I did actually, because we lived, we were renting a little old house out the road, further out here in the sticks. And um, I did get a gig in the gate when Shanna was six months old, we'd moved to Wicklow. And I used to drive up and down. We only had one car. Actually, I took the bus and then my husband would come and collect me in Arklo, which was like 12 miles at night with the kids in the car and get me off the bus after the gig. And I did that for nearly six weeks. And it was just because I really wanted to work. And again, it was a smaller character in the gate show. But like 13 lines, I think I played Preston, the housekeeper. But I mean, it was amazing. It was my first time working in the gate. But again, you know, you're just like, I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to do anything. How hard it is, I'll do it. And um, that was tough. When I look back and think, Jesus, that was really tough, actually, because <laughs> I wasn't, I, and my health wasn't great at the times so when I kind of had weird um, ear problems and just general feelings like, just not, not mental health. I mean, physically, I just wasn't in a good place physically. Um, so, yeah, so that kind of, that opened up theatre. And then after that, I did a few more theatre gigs with the new theatre, we did um, a piece about like the, the, the women of the rising and we got to finish in Paris. So, you know, things were exciting like that. It was lovely to get gigs. And, um, and then it was film, Simon, that I was really kind of wanting to get back into because that's, I suppose, the TV, doing the TV and stuff had really given me a taste for, for the screen and I really wanted to explore it more. And that was harder because I had physically changed. I put on weight as well at the time. And... Again, it's that thing of just what are you trying, you know, trying to fit into a box, a niche. Do you fit? And I'm just one of those actors. I don't know if I fit anyone's niche. You know, I'm not very, I don't know. I just don't think I'm stereotypically um, for casting, you know, sorry, whatever. I can't say the word. But um, so that was, that was when Terminal, you know. Yeah, your short film Terminal. Yeah. Yeah. So that's basically, um, that was being cast. And Natasha was casting that in Dublin. And I was, I remember I couldn't get up to Dublin on the Friday they were casting and I was so angry. I remember I was just really with Dara. I was like, I'm so mad because I really want to go for this. I just knew I could do this part. And I was like, I really want to do it. And um, I couldn't get up there. I just physically couldn't get there logistically. So I remember contacting producer Dave and I was like, oh, please, I really, I really feel this part and I feel it. Yeah, I could do this part justice. So I did just a self-tape and sent it and she just saw it and she connected and then I got to Dublin and we met. And that the rest is history and Terminal kind of took me on a new a new journey then into film and stuff, you know. Can I ask you, obviously, like Terminal had great success and then Scope later on and other stuff, but did, did you feel then when you do, when you get those short film roles, is it harder then to get into the eyes of casting directors and casting agents when you do their short ones? Or do you think it's something they look at and go, oh, she'd be great for this feature film being filmed in Wicklow? Or, you know, is it a big step? Oh, no, they definitely. I mean, film festivals are huge. And I mean, the shorts film festival circuit is amazing. And I mean, there's such a showcase of work for everybody. Um, and people do see the work, but again, I suppose see that and casting directors, there's only a handful of casting directors in Ireland anyway. And of course they'd know your work because it's their business to know your work. You know, that's the business we're in to kind of know who's out there. But again, I suppose, you know, there's, there's new blood, as I call it, coming up all the time. 
and roles are written and then how roles are written for women or how like I mean for me the parts I've played like that's thing when I kind of stepped back into film through terminal the parts I were getting were more interesting parts some of the more lead roles which I could kind of showcase yeah. what I could do um, and I feel I bring something different to every character I play you know I don't think it's they're all this, I think they're all very different um, but again it is it's just that thing of like I suppose when big features are being cast it's the profile it, they'll have somebody who will sell the film you know and there'll be so it'll either be an actor from you know abroad or it'll be a quite a well-known Irish actor because you know they, they're not going to take a risk on you know yeah, I've been around for 20 years, but they're not, you know, people go, who is she? You know, what has she been in? The other thing I think, which is maybe a small problem in Ireland and maybe in other countries too, is that there's, I know RTE and Network 2 used to show short films kind of at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. But to be honest, like with a lot of short films, it's hard to see them sometimes, isn't it? And they're not in the public eye. You have to look for them. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, well, the thing is, because when a short film is made, it can't go, you can't show it anywhere else because it's kind of tied to the festival circuit. So people say, can I see your film? And you're like, well, I, you know, you can send a private link, you know, from someone close to you, but you can't um, because the film would kind of be null and void then if the festival said, hold on a minute, we heard your film was screening, you know, somewhere. So it's that, they're kind of tied because the, the, the festival circuit want them to kind of be premieres as such, you know, and so usually they're on, they're on the festival circuit, they could be on it for years, and then eventually you release it out and people get to see it. But then again, it goes into wherever Vimeo or YouTube and no one ever sees it again, you know. And you're like, that's my best work. <laughs> Why do you think on, you know, obviously film networks and t TV networks like, like Netflix and Prime Video and these why do you think they don't show short movies? Like, because some there's some amazing short movies and you'd imagine they'd have a section, shorts, you know, award-winning shorts, but they don't really do that. No, I know there are some platforms that kind of screen shorts and that. There's been lots of different things. I don't know. Look, everything comes down to money, doesn't it, Simon? I mean, the, everything comes down mm, to money. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. In the industry, everything comes down to money and it comes down to, you know, um, the decisions made by people who want to make money or who want to make connections or make a better name. And that that's just, I mean, it, it's it's not on the sense dog eat dog because it's not. But people are trying to go up the ladder all the time. Everyone in this industry is, you know, uh, whether it's on the production side, you know, directors are trying to make a name for themselves to get work, to get that feature made. You know, the cinematographer wants to shoot, you know, get to work with some famous directors on. So everyone's trying to, 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 to um, create work for themselves we're constantly looking for work i mean i don't think there's a moment in my life i'm even thinking now i'm looking for work i know and i'm <laughs> but yeah. hi hi i'll just do this is the this is the family cast this is the family casting agency so i'm looking we're, we're looking for somebody to play the part of my younger sister yeah. <laughs> but no it's that thing of no but you're always like you know and that's being self-employed it's that thing but especially with acting you're always looking for work, really. And, and you know, there'll be the, this, again, there's all these kind of like, oh, but you can't have that need or that desperation or that yearning or that, you know, about you. You have to go in there as if you're just as cool as anything and it doesn't matter, you get the job, which is fine. And it does work probably. But when you have to feed a family, you're like, yeah, well, I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I kind of need the gig because my kids need shoes. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, sometimes like that, it doesn't matter if you work in the arts, and you need to feed your family and support them. 
you can't be too selective. You can't be like, oh, no, I can't take that gig because I'm waiting for something from, you know, Scorsese. So I'm sorry. So, I mean, we can't sometimes we cannot pick and choose. We have to get something that brings the money in and supports us. Yeah. But again, you have to be, I suppose, again, it's that thing of saying, like, you don't, you know, you can't work for free forever. You know, people are building up experience. But again, sometimes gigs will come in and they could be interesting stories and they might be like a graduation project or something. But if they're really interesting film and good characters, you know, because all this work will go on your showreel. Yeah. And obviously, if the quality and the production quality is good, because that's what you want. It's usually sometimes the characters can be brilliant, but it can be let down by the production side you know, or something else or the direction. Um, the thing is that uh, if you never, ever make millions from it, it when you leave your will, you'll say, I leave my showreel to my family. Yeah. <laughs> they can search you up on Google every day. Oh, I miss my, yeah. my mother. I miss my son. Oh, there she is. That's not her. <laughs> yeah. So tell us, so, so I was saying there at the introduction about your recent work, Thursday's Child and the animation, the Royals. Tell us a bit about that. Tell us about those roles. So Thursday's Child, yeah, is a great little independent feature actually um, by Alan Alatrash. And it's, um, I play the mother to this guy who, Brian, I haven't seen the film in a while now, but he's been, um, it's about consent, you know, and he's been accused of rape. So it's a really kind of interesting perspective. And, and Alan, Alan has, I always call him Alan, sorry, Alan has, um, has kind of come from a different angle at it, more from the kind of perspective of the boy who's been accused. And I just play his kind of fixer mother. She can fix things basically. And she's, she's a fixer. And again, it's, 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 it's from the genuine need obviously to protect her son, but it's also to fix things and, and not let, you know, it's about appearances. It, like it's a deeper level. She's kind of willing to do anything to, um, to just make this go away. I think that's it. So that was really, I, yeah, I really enjoyed that. And Liam Gaffney, who's like my, what do you call it? He's my, he's like my adoptive acting son. <laughs> Liam has played my son a few times. So I'm laughing when we went to the underground cinema awards, you know, he was there with me as well. I said, I'm like your bloody mother now. I'm I was like, <laughs> my mother was, I'm like, I'm like his mother. When you get to that stage as an actress, you're like, I'm their mother now, you know, <laughs> because he's really handsome and fucking mother. <laughs> Do you feel that, you know, the more of those roles you get then that they will try and stereotype you, uh, casting agents? No, because I think, I mean, especially with a lot of short films and stuff being made, look, they are mother, you know, these stories have, if it's a young person, they have family. I suppose they're always just trying to fit the type of character and the actor to that role because I know I get specific stuff sent to me I can see myself where they're seeing that you know and um, and or where they're seeing in me that I could fit that role and again it's um it's that it's kind of a very there's a subtlety I think in that I so my mother roles are quite subtle do you know what I mean they're not like you're you know I don't know they're just quite subtle I think and, and I think it depends what the writer is looking for or the director and um, and again, I always think as an actor, especially in film or that, sorry, Simon, but like as a supporting actor, yeah, like you obviously might be the lead role, you might be, but you're facilitating the story. So say there's my son, it's his story. I'm doing my best acting to make that story great, to make the film great. So you're facilitating the other actor. It's like doing a scene with someone. I did an audition when I with them um, years ago with a young fella for an ad. And I remember thinking, I have to hope and get the hell of getting this ad probably, but he might get it. So me and him had a great scene, but I was doing it for him, 
you know, and I actually did, I did get cast in the ad, I couldn't do it for, but um, yeah, so it's that, it's, it's, I suppose for me, it's always generosity, or acting's about generosity. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I think obviously something that's come to the forefront of the acting world in, in the last few years, and it's still a big problem, is the fact that, you know, especially for women, that they're casting, you know, women in wrong age categories. So, you know, instead of you playing someone in their 40s, they want you to play someone in your 60s or 50s, and they want someone who's 25 to play like Tom Cruise's wife. And, you know, so the casting is all wrong, but they're looking for these beautiful young girls to play older, more mature roles. So that can be very frustrating for female actresses, no? I don't think it's any surprise, you know, because... It's that thing, isn't it? In Hollywood, like they say, an actress's career is over at 40, which is pretty, pretty sad, you think. But and it's not true because there's so many wonderful actresses now who are way past 40. And um, yeah, again, you know, that's just people not really thinking. They're, they're kind of falling and ticking boxes and they're going, oh, you know, and they're falling into it because I suppose sometimes scripts as well, I'm sure production houses and directors read scripts all the time and they're like, oh, come on, man. You know, they're very stereotypical and they're very set. Um, and again, it's for directors, I suppose, to be able to say, hold on a minute, I want, you know, it's like, I suppose, it's like the the, the Dig movie where Kerry Mulligan is cast as um, the woman who was actually in her 50s. Now, Kerry Mulligan's 35 or something and she's a wonderful actress and she did an amazing job. But again, I suppose, you think, well, why didn't they cast an actress in her 50s? Like, what were they afraid of, you know? Um, that you know again is it about sex appeal does it have to be you know even the story is nothing about sex like you know it's about fucking archaeology and digging in the dirt like you know but does it so again it's that um, they're using yeah. kind of subliminal subliminal stuff to um, make people you know or, or an audience a male audience I don't know you know I think um what do you call it? What happens in Hollywood, it, even though it, it doesn't happen as much with the men, but they still try to make these 50 year old men look like they're 35, you know, so they have a lot of dental work. They have plastic surgery. They, but you see, they're bankable. Yeah. I mean, they're bankable. Yeah. Like, they're bankable. I mean, if you attach somebody like that to, to your movie, you know, there's a lot of actors who are kind of retired. But someone could say, I'm making this movie and you're going to have the lead role. You bring that actor out of retirement, your movie is going to sell or it's going to go to Sundance or it's going to go to Cannes. You know, it's going to go on to the kind of the cool scene. or And again, it's just profile, isn't it? And I don't, maybe I sound really cynical saying that, but it is profile. I mean, look, it's that, it's all, you're told who's famous. You're told all the time by PR and marketing who's famous, who's the next big thing. It's like we joke in Ireland, it's like, you know, the emerging stars, the rising stars. You're like, well, you could be rising at any age. Brendan Gleeson was a, a school teacher, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah. I think, in his, you know, and was he an emerging star when he became famous? Yes, 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 or was he just, yeah, you know? Yeah. So I, I don't know, you see. I, I know um, sometimes it's it's a bit controversial, isn't it? Or actors, people go, oh, they're just bitter or they're just, you know. I think fans see that as well and viewers because, you know, uh, when I look at male actors, for example, and they're, you know, 55 and they're playing these action roles of a 35 year old, you kind of say, yeah, but these guys have to really maintain their fitness and they have to maintain their looks and, you know, maybe have cosmetic work, maybe have dental work. And the truth is, it's Hollywood. It's fictitious because the majority of 55 year old men don't look like they do. And so the thing is, I think it comes down to the same thing with female actresses where 
They want these 50-year-old women to look like they're 35, but pretend they're 50, you know. But, isn't, but then isn't it the audience want that? Do you know yeah. what I mean? That's what I'm saying. That it's supply and demand. So I don't know. That's why, again, sometimes I say, like, society is responsible for a lot of stuff that happens. And we yeah. try to kind of blame on someone else. But to go, hold on a minute. Did you question your own, you know, um, prejudice or judgment? It's that thing. And, and, yeah, the whole thing is women. I suppose, yeah, that's for me. I don't really worry. What would have really concerned me in my career was my weight. And because I was thin when I was young, but I thought I was fat, you know, which is all, every woman will say, oh my God, if I could just be like I was in that picture. But the thing was, it is, yeah, weight is such a, and there's obviously such an obsession with like being really skinny. That's for the camera because the camera does, as they say, fatten and flatten. But the thing is, it, it, there is something, there's an aesthetic value. It's like models. You know, why do designers want really thin models to wear the clothes? Because it's the way the clothes hang. There is, there's something, there's a lot to do with like aesthetics and kind of how we see things visually. But saying that it's, you know, it doesn't always have to be that way. And that's why when I, it's like I love French film and stuff. And I see, and I go, it always looks really real. Like that the men in their 50s look like men in their 50s, you know. The women might be glamorous, but they still look like women in their 50s or their 60s. Yeah. But again, we're, and I think in Ireland, we fall into that kind of Western, the American stereotype a little bit, don't we? I think we... Well, yeah. And, and see, the problem is, it's like now with all these reality shows. I mean, I said one night to my wife, we were watching, you know, this uh, Love Island and and we don't we don't watch like if we ever watched Love Island or any of those reality shows, we don't watch them when they're on. We watch them like a year or two later, you know. And uh, so we they could they, these people mightn't exist in the celebrity world anymore. But the thing is, I always say, wouldn't it be really interesting if they did Love Island, but with like divorcees? So people in their 50s. Yeah, or just with normal people with bellies and beer bellies. and. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, people who are looking for love again. Yeah, looking for love again, but have pot bellies or have your cellulite, you know. But that's Simon again. I mean, I've watched some of those shows myself. It's pure escapism. Like, it really is. Yeah. There is something about, it's like going into a Barbie house or something like, you know, like say if someone said, okay, you're allowed to go into Barbie's house for like just a day and, and sit there. You know, I think most people are like, geez, that would be mad, wouldn't it? <laughs> but I think it's that, yeah, but just to kind of, there's something about perfection, isn't there? And that striving, we strive for perfection, even though we know it doesn't exist, but we just love to see. <clears throat> I don't know, it feels nice. There must be something, that's what I said again, something on the visual medium that affects us. You know, it's how, I think it's how we see things. I don't, there must be studies done and it's to do with our eyes, I think, and how we see stuff and how it makes us feel. Maybe, you know, it's it's how, because a lot of it, it's altered as well. So it's like Photoshopping, it's it's altered, you know. I want to ask you, so we were talking there about your, your current role. So tell us about the, the Royals and like, where can people see that? Oh yeah, well, it's not out yet actually. So I'm, it's called The Royals Next Door and it's an animation, Next Door. animation yeah. sitcom. And it is, I think it's going to come on to RTE and maybe other channels because it's a Finnish, Irish and an, maybe Spanish co-production, I'm not sure. But I voice the Queen Mother. So that's really exciting because I never thought in my life I would be like Queen Mother. So I was channeling a little bit of Helena Bonham Carter. So that was kind of in my head. I was like, oh, it sounds a bit like her. But anyway, the, no, it's really, it's fun and it's a really talented cast. And I think it's going to be really, really brilliant. So I, yeah, I can't, I don't know. I think the pandemic has kind of put a... Um, delayed all of that but hopefully this year and um, 
so there's that and then other yeah a few other kind of projects that have been delayed just because of covid but uh, i'm working on a theater project and i'm working on developing another new writing theater project kind of co-producing with an art center here so i'm always busy always proactive because i just can't stop <laughs> i can't I just you know i need to i just need to be to be making stuff all the time or i'll start like malfunction <laughs> yeah but that but that's good and you know, I think sometimes when people are trying very hard, nothing can appear or nothing can, you know, work for them. But then all of a sudden, out of the blue, something can come out of left field and say, oh, my God, here's this new role. So you never know what can come of it. And who knows, maybe some, maybe Alan Parker or somebody's going to be watching this podcast and, you know, they're going to be thinking, oh, wow, I like this girl's energy. And so, yeah, who's she? But it, yeah, no, no, definitely. I mean, that's look at that Simon. That's what keeps you going. You know, when you're the, I'm 20 years as an actor, you know, I could have given up a long time ago. That's what keeps you going. Is that the unpredictable and the and the unknown? And that opportunity does come sometimes when you least expect it. And as well, you make your own opportunity, which is 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 kind of the fulfilling part. And as well, you grow as a person and as an artist when you get to do that. So you know yourself it's like doing your podcast yeah stuff, every, stuff. everything has to grow you're creating, you're creating an energy and like that you're putting it out there some people will respond to it some people won't but that's fine isn't it because those who who are kind of meant to come into your um stratosphere will you know yeah for sure and so when you look back now like you know obviously you've had a i don't want to say long career because i'm putting you into this stereotypical 50 year old role <laughs> but but when you look back at your career so far and everything, what what kind of were the highlights for you? Um, <laughs> this is your life. Yeah, what were the highlights? Oh Jesus! Um, I think Pure Mule was definitely because that was my first TV gig. I mean, it was just so special and it was just fun. I can even just in my head have the memory, the colours and the you know just the, the crack in the pub afterwards and just the kind of joy of making this new series in Ireland. Um, I think all my projects, they all kind of, they've all offered up something new. And then the work I'm doing now, again, they're just, it's like, you know, for me, sometimes the way I describe, I was describing myself to a mentorship meeting with someone the other day. I've like about 10 different things going on at the same time, you know, <laughs> which can probably maybe be a bit confusing for other people. I have kind of like, yeah, 10, you know, 10 different roads, different highways coming out of my brain. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's just... Like for me, every like being an actor and having that energy and creating, it's all about creativity. That for me is a highlight because once that's gone for me, then, you know, I will just, I will just power down, you know? Yeah, okay. Well, that's great. So listen, it's been great chatting to you and, um, you know, we want to say best of luck this year and well done on all the awards for the short roles and the short movies and everything. It's brilliant. And we're going to put links to all of those movies and stuff, whatever can be watched online. And so we want to say again, best of luck. Thank you very much. It's been a really interesting chat. And, uh, you know, Andrea Kelly, everybody. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Simon. Cheers, everyone. <laughs> Bye. Okay. Thank you very much, Andrea. We really enjoyed that interview. Very interesting. And we will have you on the in the future again sometime soon. 
Moving on to next week's guest, we will be speaking next week to Dave Finnegan. So Dave Finnegan is an actor, singer, and musician who has appeared as Mika Wallace in the film The Commitments, as well as other movies and documentaries. He is also the lead singer of Dave Finnegan's Commitments. That should be an interesting conversation, and we hope you tune in. So until then, we thank you for listening tonight, and we hope you have a lovely day and a lovely week. Until the next time, take care and talk to you soon. Bye-bye, folks. (laughs) 